Hey y'all, welcome to Best Virginia, the podcast where we talk about the fascinating history, culture, and folklore of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. You got shot, you got stabbed, you lost everything that you had. There ain't no time to wonder why, but to hang your head and cry, oh no. That's pretty impressive. So, um, you know, real quick, tell us a little bit about some of your writing projects and some of your research. Do you care to tell us a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So for my research, I use data from a couple of spacecraft that either were orbiting or are currently in orbit around Venus and Mars. And the bulk of my research deals with trying to understand how the atmospheres of Venus and Mars respond when the sun changes. So, you know, most people know about solar flares. There are also things called coronal mass ejections, which are like these huge eruptions of the sun's outer atmosphere. And those things affect the atmospheres of all the planets, including the Earth. And so one of the things we want to know is how those things change the atmospheres when they hit um, and how those changes that we see today can kind of be extrapolated back in time, millions and billions of years to understand what those planets' atmospheres used to look like way back in the day. So that's more or less what I work on. Oh, wow, just casual. That's that's some really cool <laughs> stuff. That's yeah, a... it's pretty fun. <laughs> it sounds... Do you ever see anything like... I don't know, I guess your version of really cool and my version of really cool are probably different. All of that sounds really cool to me. Uh, but what's like uh, some of the biggest findings you've ran across, if you don't care to share? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So let me think. So one of the things we do is a lot of comparisons between Venus and Mars because um, we think that billions of years ago when the solar system was forming, Earth and Venus and Mars were all probably pretty similar. They all probably had pretty thick atmospheres and they were probably pretty warm and had liquid water on their surfaces. But now only Earth is habitable for humans and Venus is like very hot and hellish and Mars is super cold and dry. So we do a lot of comparisons between Mars and Venus because they're both kind of like cautionary tales for the Earth. And that's one of the things I'm working on right now is to look at how the atmospheres of Venus and Mars respond to changes on the sun and to see which planet responds more. It's kind of hard to explain. 
Oh, I I can't even imagine. But yeah, I think he, it sounds to me like he did a good job because I feel like I understand what you're trying to say. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's also kind of scary because I never really thought of it like that. But, you know, as far as planets being similar to one another and changing over time and following similar patterns with one another. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard to imagine because most humans can't really wrap their minds around what could change in a billion years. So it's hard to imagine that these places used to be like Earth. Like on Mars, you can kind of get a sense of it because we get these pictures from all the rovers and the orbiters and you can see like, oh, this sort of looks like there used to be a river here or maybe a lake that has nice mountains. And then Venus, Venus is just like this terrible place. So it's hard to imagine that it used to be a nice place to potentially have life and now. It's so terrible. I mean, I say it's terrible, but Venus is like my favorite planet. Um, I call it Earth's evil twin. Okay, I can see that. That's that's a good uh, a good description, I think, from what I know about planets, which is next to nothing. But, <laughs> um, but also, like, so for the listeners, you know, they don't really know, but we've been talking back and forth for quite a while now, for several months, uh, trying to get this interview set up, and I, I think you know. Right now seems like a really cool time for everything to have came together just because of some stuff going on with the observatory and also with the rover. Yeah, the Green Bank Telescope um, had a hand in tracking the passage of the rover as it was landing on the planet, which is like the most intense and scariest, like scariest time in the rover mission. They call it the seven minutes of terror and that's the time between the rover enters Mars's atmosphere and when it lands on the surface. Um, and so we use telescopes like the Green Bank Telescope to track the rover's progress and make sure that it is proceeding well and not going to like crash into the surface. Um, and so that's how we know what's going on, you know, millions of miles away. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I had no idea that they were involved in all that. That's really cool. So before we get too far into that, though. We haven't really described what exactly the Green Bank Observatory is. I know a lot of listeners probably have heard of it or maybe have even been visited there or been by there or have read about it. So do you care to tell us a little bit about what they do there? Sure thing. So um, the Green Bank Observatory is a radio astronomy observatory, which means that instead of having telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope that take pictures that kind of approximate what our eyes can see, they instead make pictures using radio waves, which are much, much bigger than um, optical wavelengths. So normally we think about radio waves for you know, listening to the radio, but you can actually make pictures using radio waves that we can look at and you know, do science with. So Green Bank Observatory is one of the world's leading observatories. It's really cool. It is home to the Green Bank Telescope, which is the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope. It's super massive and super cool. And if you ever get a chance to go visit and check it out, I definitely recommend it. Green Bank is in Pocahontas County, and it's like in this beautiful landscape set against the mountains. So it's a great place to visit. Wow. And you did a little bit of work there, correct? I did, although to call it work, um, I don't know about all that, but I did get the chance to visit Green Bank actually when I was 14 years old, when I was participating in the governor's school for math and science. So they took a whole bunch of nerdy teenagers and brought them to Green Bank, and we got to not only carry out a research project on the 40-foot telescope, which is usually used for education purposes, but also use the big 
um, 100-meter Green Bank Telescope. So it was a really cool experience um, to get to spend a couple weeks at Green Bank. And for me, it was definitely a formative experience and is probably the biggest reason that I decided to go into astronomy. So it sounds like you've been interested in this kind of stuff for quite a while, but for Green Bank to be such a, like you said, one of the leading telescopes and everything, you know, for you to be a teenager, to be able to visit that and be kind of interested in that stuff to begin with, I can imagine that that would be such a formative experience, like you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think a lot of people growing up are really interested in space. Like space is such a cool thing. Um, And in West Virginia and in many rural areas, we have the chance to see like a really nice night sky. And so I think a lot of people are curious about it, um, which I think is great. But most people don't have the chance to actually kind of get their hands dirty and doing the science and to actually understand what that's like. Um, And so to get to do that at such a young age was amazing and just a great experience. And yeah, I'm not sure what would have happened um, with my career if I hadn't ended up at Green Bank all those years ago. That's really cool. And it's it always it's mind blowing to me. I know you know, West Virginia is kind of prime territory for something like that just because Mm -hmm. of how much, you know, open, like, just space that we have without light pollution and without all this stuff going on to interfere with the the telescope, I imagine. Of course, I'm no expert by any stretch. No, you're completely right. Yeah, Green Bank is... Honestly, I don't think there's another place quite like it anywhere in the world. Um... You mentioned light pollution, which certainly is less there. But for radio astronomy, you also have to worry about radio frequency interference. And there are so many things in our lives that generate interference. And so we have these super sensitive telescopes, but there's like all this like technological interference that's just kind of screaming at them. And they're looking for these really tiny signals. Um, I saw it described that the kind of like level of energy that the telescopes can detect is less than the energy of a single snowflake hitting the ground. So imagine trying to see that when there's like all these like, you know, radio and television and cell phone and Wi-Fi signals. So to have a place like Green Bank where all of those things can be quieted and we can listen to the universe is amazing. And I'm so glad that it gets to be in West Virginia. Me too. And it it really is amazing because, you know, and that's, precisely one of the reasons that I started this show to begin with is we have so much really cool stuff just in our backyard that we don't really talk about or we've heard about or we've you know maybe even visited but you know we don't really think about it on the grand scheme of things like as far as how impactful some of this stuff is like the Green Bank Telescope and the the observatory Um, because it is I mean like you said they just they were pretty crucial in the landing of the rover. You know, that's that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So to have that in our backyard is really cool. And uh, if, and you were talking about, like, all of the interference and things like that. If I'm not mistaken, it's a it's a dead zone there, right? Like, or technology's pretty limited and as far as, like, personal devices and things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So Green Bank is situated in this area that's called the National Radio Quiet Zone, which... Um, is kind of like a it's a big square it has a bunch of west virginia a little bit of virginia and like a teeny tiny chunk of maryland it's about thirteen thousand square miles and as you get closer to green bank within the radio quiet zone it gets more and more restrictive in terms of the types of radio frequencies you can use 
So the people who live in and around Green Bank, like they don't have Wi-Fi, anything like that. Um, there are restrictions on the types of cars you can have because spark plugs will cause radio frequency interference. And there's actually a team of people who goes around and finds these radio interference leaks that are interfering with the telescopes. So it's a really beautiful place and quiet in more ways than one because they do have all these restrictions on the technology that can be used there. Personally, that sounds like heaven to me, but... (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I read an article a while back about people with... um electromagnetic electromagnetic sensitivities or something like that mm-hmm. that kind of being yeah i've also read about that yeah yeah so i don't know how real that is or if that is like a total myth or you know i just wanted to kind of get your opinion on that if you have one. Oh yeah i mean i definitely cannot weigh in on <laughs> like the validity of this but i i am familiar with um people moving to green bank green bank because it really appeals to them to not have you know, there's no cell service there. There's no Wi-Fi. So, yeah, for people who find themselves sensitive to electromagnetic radiation, it's a real boon for them, as well as people who just, like, want to have a simpler life and focus on other things. But as far as, like, the electromagnetic sensitivity goes, you know, I just do the, the astronomy part. I can't really weigh in on that. Right, and that's fair. I just thought I'd bring it up because that's... That was actually how um, the topic got introduced to me in the first place. And then when mm-hmm. you reached out to me, I was like, okay, this is probably a much more um, a much more legitimate way to approach it. But, you know, it's kind of... Because the article that I read was... It was pretty out there. Um, it was talking about, you know, it was very um, holistic would be the word, I think. <laughs> very holistic approach to, mm-hmm. you know, people moving there because they have these sensitivities that aren't necessarily backed by science in the first place. So, you know, it, it talked about it as like a cult. So <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I, I think I've read those same articles, um, not just like in preparing for this interview, but just in general, because anytime I see an article about Green Bank, I'm, I'm like, I got to see what they're saying about West Virginia. Um, I don't know that there's a consensus yet. I, I feel like the few studies that have been done have hinted that it's not backed up by science. Um that there's no like physical cause for it, but who knows? Honestly, <laughs> I'm I'm no expert. Yeah, me either, and that's why I just kind of wanted to bring it up. So the Green Bank Observatory has played a huge role in the search for extra extraterrestrial intelligence, otherwise known as SETI, over the years. Um, the first ever SETI experiment using a radio telescope was started in 1960 at um, Green Bank. That was called Project Ozma. So for Project Ozma, they pointed the telescope at two stars, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani, which are about 10 light years away. Um, and for reference, the nearest star to us, Proxima Centauri, is about four light years away. So in, you know, the scale of the universe, they're pretty close, but they're not the closest stars. Um, and they looked at 21 centimeters, which is a really important wavelength in the history of radio astronomy. It's emitted by hydrogen, of which there is a ton in the universe, so it's a really important wavelength to look at, and one that we expect an extraterrestrial civilization might try to communicate with us at. Um, And so they looked at these stars and hoped to find a signal and unfortunately didn't find any evidence of extraterrestrial civilizations. So, a little disappointing, um, but Green Bank is still involved with SETI now as part of... um, 
the Breakthrough Listen project. Breakthrough Listen is a 10-year search for extraterrestrial radio communications. Um, it uses three different radio telescopes, of which one of them is the Green Bank Telescope. There's also the Parkes Telescope in Australia and the world's largest radio telescope, um, which is the FAST Telescope in China. And they have checked out a lot of different targets. They've looked at nearby stars and the center of the galaxy, as well as you might remember a few years ago, there was an asteroid that kind of sped through the solar system called Oumuamua, um, which we believe came from another um, star system. So it has been doing a lot of searching for um, SETI targets. And unfortunately, we still haven't found anything, but we do have another five years left. So hopefully something will turn up in that time. Okay, so that's really cool. And it's I love that you mentioned Oumuamua because I've, I was super excited whenever they first um, spotted it because I was like, this is it. The aliens are finally here. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you said, it was kind of disappointing um, because it just kind of passed through. But it's also, on that front at least, but also it is super exciting because, like you said, it does come from somewhere else. So mm-hmm. that's, that's extremely uh, interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty cool if it were aliens, not going to lie. But it's also really exciting to have a chunk of some other solar system flying through ours. I think that's definitely something that astronomers have predicted, because we think as solar systems form, they eject lots of material, and it's got to go somewhere. Um, But space is big, as you know, (laughs) so it takes a while for it it to reach us. Um, So it's pretty exciting that in our lifetimes we got to see this. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that comes to mind for me, and I don't know how, like, you know, how this might be for you, but it's really cool that it's coming from somewhere else, but also it has to go somewhere else after ours, right? Absolutely. Theoretically, at least. Yeah, I mean, eventually it will either, you know, breeze through another stellar system or maybe even hit something. Maybe it'll get, you know, swallowed by a star or something. Okay, that's fair, too. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm super excited about just all that stuff, but as much as a lay person can be. So that was really exciting for me. Um, I remember reading the article whenever it was like cigar-shaped object flies through our galaxy or or our solar system, Um, whatever the correct term would be. And I was so excited because I was like, this is it. It's going to be Independence Day. They're going to, they're going to come and say Hi. Who knows? Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, I imagine there's, with science, there's a lot of studies, a lot of research, and it sounds like the Green Bank Observatory is a pretty big deal in in this particular community. So, you know, what are some of the big studies or the big, um, kind of the big things that they're involved with? Oh, that is a great question. Um Yeah, Green Bank is absolutely a big deal. It isn't the absolute largest radio telescope in the world. Um, There is a larger one in China, Um, but the really special thing about it is that you can move it. It's like this, I don't even know how many pound thing. It's like almost 500 feet tall, and you can move it to point in almost any direction, which means you can look at most of the sky, which is a really big deal. Um, And because it's a radio telescope and not an optical telescope, you can also use it during the day, which I think is very cool and I think surprises a lot of people. Um, 
But yeah, it has been used for a lot of discoveries over the year, not just the Green Bank Telescope, but the other telescopes on site as well. So for example, the very first molecule in space was discovered at Green Bank. Um, Way back in 1969, they discovered formaldehyde. And this is a huge deal because space isn't completely empty, but there's not a lot of stuff out there. And so for a long time, it was thought that interstellar space didn't have enough stuff to form molecules. So once we discovered formaldehyde, that was pretty game-changing to realize that molecules can form in space. Um, They don't have to form, you know, on planets or something like that. So that's pretty exciting. Um, Another really big discovery is the discovery of what we call Sagittarius A-star, which is the name we give to the black hole at the center of our galaxy. So, you know, two pretty huge things in the history of astronomy were discovered at Green Bank. That's amazing. And, you know, again, just having that right in our backyard and to be such, uh, so influential and such a big deal. Uh, I know, you know, I just don't know how else to explain it other than it's just such a big deal as far as astronomy and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think um, it's something that West Virginians can be really proud of. Um, It's right in our backyard. And there are scientists coming to West Virginia from all over the world to use this telescope, these telescopes. And I think that's really great, too, that they get to come to West Virginia and experience it themselves. Yeah, I agree. Um, Also, earlier you mentioned the telescope that is in China. So, and then you were talking about how ours is steerable. Is there, is their telescope steerable as well? No, theirs is not. Um, so their telescope is quite a bit bigger. Um, it's 500 meters in diameter. So the diameter is five times bigger. Um, but it, instead of being able to point in any direction, it takes advantage of kind of like a natural landform. Um, it's built in kind of like this natural basin. This was also the case for the Arecibo radio telescope, which was also bigger than the Green Bank telescope, but unfortunately um, suffered a lot of damage and collapsed recently. Um, But yeah, so for those two telescopes, they can't, they basically look straight up and look at whatever passes above them in the sky, as opposed to the Green Bank telescope, which can look in any direction. That's awesome. Now, is that the biggest one of its type where it is steerable like that? Yeah. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, it's like, it's, when you see pictures of it kind of silhouetted against the mountains, you're like, yeah, that's a big telescope. But until you actually go and stand next to it, it's hard to picture how big it is. I like to use the reference frame that it is taller than the world's tallest roller coaster. Um, So if you've ever been to Six Flags and been on King Daka, that's 456 feet. This is about 30 feet taller, and it's massive. It's very cool to see, especially when it moves. Oh, that's awesome. Did you get to see it move while you were there? Yeah, we actually, um, we got to go out one night and watch as someone else was using the telescope, and so we got to see it. We call it slewing is when the telescope moves towards its target. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's kind of hard to believe that something that big can move. <laughs> I, yeah, I imagine. I don't really have anything in reference to that. Um, 
you know, because I have, personally I haven't been there, and I definitely haven't gotten to see it move and operate and things like that. I, maybe one of these days, but until then, all I can do is take your word for it. <laughs> um, so, is there anything else that you're kind of burning to tell us, or that you have that you'd like to share with us about the Green Bank Observatory or the telescopes or um, any other findings that you'd like to share or anything like that? That is a great question. Um... Well, the one thing I definitely want to say to everyone is that if you ever get the chance to visit Green Bank, you absolutely should, because they have a very cool visitor center that tells you all about the history of radio astronomy and the role that Green Bank has played in it. And when was it first constructed? So the observatory as a whole was started in the 1950s. Um, I think the first observations happened in 1958. And the Green Bank telescope, so the the 100-meter telescope, started construction in 1991, so the Green Bank Telescope and I are about the same age, um, and it saw its first light. It did its first observations in 2000. Oh wow! So it's still rarely, or still fairly young. Yeah, I guess so. That's what I'm telling myself because I was all, I was born in 91, so <laughs> still pretty young. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a spring chicken. Uh, it's got many good years left. So that brings me to another good question you may or may not know. So these types of telescopes and, you know, the, as far as the the Green Bank Telescope and things like that. So how long do those usually stay in commission? That is a great question. Um, I don't know that I have a number for that right off the top of my head, but what I can tell you is that Green Bank, the Green Bank Telescope was preceded by a 300-foot diameter telescope that was um, originally built in 1962, and it ended up collapsing in 1988 because the metal of the telescope fatigued, and it just couldn't hold up all that weight anymore. You know, so that's only 26 years. Um, I hope that they figured out whatever design issues um, we're a part of this telescope that preceded the Green Bank Telescope, and those won't be an issue anymore. But I would guess that it has decades left. So have you had the opportunity to visit other any other really cool telescopes or observatories? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I've been able to use the Lowell Discovery Telescope in Arizona, which is 4.3 meters in diameter. So a lot smaller than the Green Bank Telescope, but this is an optical telescope, so it doesn't need to be as big. Um, and that was a really cool experience because most telescopes that are used for scientific observations don't have like an eyepiece, like a backyard telescope would, that you can actually physically look through the telescope. Most of the time when you see the images come through, they're just coming through the computer. Um, but when I was visiting this telescope in Arizona, I did actually get the chance to look through the eyepiece of this huge telescope before they actually covered it up with a different scientific instrument. Um, and that was really, really cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I've only got to use like the backyard telescopes you were talking about, so I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, if you ever get the chance to look through a four meter telescope, I would definitely say go for it. Um, it's pretty rare um, to be able to see color in space, like things in space have color but they're usually just not very bright, and so it's really hard to see it with your eyes. And that's why we take these long exposure images with like Hubble and other telescopes that have really beautiful colors. 
Um, but looking through the Lowell Discovery Telescope, I was able to see that the stars actually had different colors and like the nebulae have different colors, which was a pretty cool experience. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm glad you got that experience. That sounds really cool. One thing that the Green Bank Telescope has done that I personally find very cool, I don't know if this would be like in the top 10 list of science things that it's done, but for me personally, um, the Green Bank Telescope was involved in constructing a radar map of the surface of Venus, which I don't think when people think of radio telescopes, they think about looking at planets, but it's it's possible to make these radar maps. And in the case of Venus, it has these really thick clouds where you can't see down to the surface. So to be able to use a radio telescope to peer down through those clouds and map the surface is pretty amazing. Just to kind of rewind for a split second, so being able to kind of map out the surface of Venus, like you were saying, that's not something you're able to do with, a, with the clouds like that with an optical telescope, correct? That's right. If you look at Venus with an optical telescope, first of all, it's very hard because Venus is very bright. Um, so most optical telescopes are made to look at things that are very, very dim and small and far away. So Venus is actually kind of too bright to look at some of the time. Um, and yeah, if you look, you would just see kind of like a whitish yellow surface or not surface, but like cloud layer. You wouldn't see any features below it. Oh, wow. So that makes, that makes it even cooler to me. Yeah. So, and I imagine, you know, that thing itself is pretty, you know, probably pretty crucial to your work now or in your research now, correct? Um, the surface? As far as seeing the maps, uh, of the surface of Venus? Well, it's not, it's not like directly related to my work, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but a, a lot of people, like one of the big questions for Venus is about its surface. Cause it has like this weirdly young surface. Um, so there's a big question about when volcanism ended on Venus. And I think radar maps can give us a really good sense or, okay. Well, I'm saying this in the worst possible way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a, that was more of a personal question for me anyway. Yeah. No, I just think they're super cool. Like when I, whenever I put pictures of Venus in presentations, I always use the radar maps um, because I just think they're awesome. I don't blame you there. I've never seen Venus. Well, you probably have and you just don't know it. Okay. I'm going to Google like, it later. <laughs> I meant, like, actually in the night sky. But, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, Venus is like, you know when they say that you're supposed to wish upon the first star that you see? The first thing you see at night that looks like a star is usually Venus. Okay, that's something I did not know. And I imagine a, prob a lot of the listeners probably didn't know as well. Yeah, it just looks like a really bright star, right? Like, right after the sun sets or right before it rises. Okay, wow, that's awesome. You know, I definitely appreciate having you on here this evening. So it sounds like you definitely know your stuff, and it sounds like you have cool experiences that I'm glad you shared with us today. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm happy to be on the show, and I'm happy to share with you guys. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Best Virginia Podcast, created and hosted by me, Jordan Mitchell, featuring special guest Carrie Hensley, and featuring music by 18 Strings. As always, thanks for listening. Stay wild, stay weird, and stay wonderful.